Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Long Shot Podcast, brought to you by 342 Productions. I am your host, as always, Duncan Robinson. And of course, I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Davis Reed. Yes, back again. What's up? Uh, not much. I'm, I'm here in uh, Indianapolis, the home of the 2021 NCAA tournament. Yes. Which is pretty exciting. Uh, they're going through their own little rendition of the bubble. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm boots on the ground here in Indy. But it's nice. That I, I will say this. The city has some energy. Uh, big time energy just walking around seeing all the banners so it's a uh, it's it's nostalgic in some senses in case anyone forgot uh, I made a trip to Monday night in my <laughs> my senior year uh, with the Michigan Wolverines so uh, it is certainly nostalgic in that regard in case anyone forgot when you think back to your national championship run is there a moment or a springboard or <laughs> okay something well, that wanna- comes to mind? <laughs> I want to stop you there uh, just because I don't want to be, you know, guilty of, you know, revising history. The national championship run makes it sound like I won a national championship. Yeah, near national championship run, I should say. National championship game run. Which I did not do. And I'm reminded about it often. Uh, I also did not play particularly well in the championship game. If there's one game that I could. I'd like to have back, you know, I try not to live with many regrets, but if there's one game going back that I could take back, it would certainly be that one on Monday night against Dante DiVincenzo and the Villanova Wildcats. (laughs) You said that exactly right. It's Dante DiVincenzo and the Villanova. Here's the thing. If it makes you feel any better, you could have played incredibly and it wouldn't really have made a difference. I don't think they were losing to anybody that night, regardless of how they were playing. That gives me a little bit of peace uh, in in my heart and in my mind. But uh, nonetheless, to go out like that, to end your college career, five-year college career, by the way, as I've I've mentioned plenty of times, I took my time, did my five years. uh, But but to go out like that certainly hurt. And Dante, just everything he was throwing up was going in that night. And as you said, you know they 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 put it on us pretty good. I'll say this because you didn't answer my question, so I'll answer my own question. My favorite memory of that run, um, because I know that's what everybody wants to know, is the Elite Eight, the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight games were played in Los Angeles, where I was living at the time. City of Angels. The City of Angels. So I got to go to both of those games. And in the Elite Eight, you guys beat Florida State, and you hit sort of like a dagger three in the corner right in front of where I was with like two minutes left maybe to go up 10. And I'll never forget it. One of the biggest shots, I think at that point, one of the biggest shots of your career to send your boys to the final four. And I just remember the place went nuts. There were so many Michigan fans in that place. So side note, a lot of uh, Wolverines in Los Angeles apparently, but it was electric. Yeah, we had the Staples Center feeling like Chrysler Arena on campus in in Ann Arbor. Uh, That was special. I had a bunch of family and friends in attendance. Probably my favorite part of that weekend were the activities that ensued afterwards. I was going to go there. I didn't know if if we should go there, but now we're here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we're we're here. We we can... uh, you know, paint a, a brief picture of, of what transpired. Nothing like totally out of the ordinary, but basically what happened was is we end up in the final four. We beat Florida State in the Elite Eight. 
We don't have a we have a week until we don't play again. And I just remember being in LA. I think it was like a Saturday night. Yeah, I think it was. It was a Saturday night in LA. Our game was over at like eight thirty or nine because we we had the earlier slotted game. And I just remember being like, "We're going to the Final Four. Like we have to celebrate in some capacity." And uh, of course, at this point, I, I was twenty three years old, uh, so I, <laughs> I was I was certainly allowed to uh, at least in, enjoy an adult beverage if if I so choose. Uh, but the creativity, basically, we 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 get everyone together. And we decide that we're going to make a a trip as a team, of course, out and just enjoy a little night in L.A. And nothing crazy, nothing out of the ordinary. But the the great thing about it was that nobody had any clothes, you know, like like going out clothes or like casual clothes. We all had Michigan sweatsuits. So here we are just roaming the streets of Los Angeles in our Jordan jumpsuits very clearly the Michigan basketball team. Uh, not that anyone really cares, but but I will say like we, we got some acknowledgement and some love, uh, but it, it was just funny to be out and about, you know, a bunch of college kids out in uh, out in LA, just trying to mix it up in, in the city of angels. It was special. And, and you were there too for it, which was, uh, which made it all the more special. Yeah, it was. I, I just fact checked. It was a Sunday night actually. So a Sunday night in Los Angeles is, you know, by no means dead. I think a Sunday night in Los Angeles is more more popping than uh, Saturday in other parts of the country, but right. uh, it wasn't a Saturday night. So uh, limited options, but yes, w- you know, just wanted to get out, see the town, uh, enjoy a Final Four run. Here, what I remember most of that night is because, or is that I came to the hotel that you guys were staying in, and the hotel lobby had set up like a little party for you guys after the yep. game since you had won, and they catered in and out. So there were In-N-Out mm. burgers, just a stack of In-N-Out burgers. That there was, was special. music playing. There was like one mini bar set up, but no one knew if it was okay to drink or not. Because like you said, you were 23. Like a lot of the, most of those guys are of age, but right. it's also still a college team and your college coaches are around. So there, there was this kind of strange tension of eating In-N-Out burgers. And then should we have a vodka soda or, or do we skip the mini bar? Yeah, there's definitely a, a strange dynamic. If I remember correctly, you certainly weren't skipping any sort of mini bar. Well, I was not a college athlete at that time. <laughs> right. Important to note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, that's just some good old fashioned uh, nostalgia, bringing it back to the. Wait, the, you never, you never answered my question. Is there a game or a moment or a memory from that run that sticks out most? Interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll say this, and and we're gonna. I'm going to transition into a little bit more serious tone. I think for me, the springboard moment happened earlier in the year, actually, when, and I've talked about this before, when I was actually taken out of the starting lineup and essentially benched for Isaiah Livers, who's now gone on to be a a big time player. Um, It was at the time, but, you know, I was a senior who had started most of my career um or at least more than half of my career at Michigan at that point and I I got pulled out of the starting lineup because basically we weren't really playing that well and and I wasn't really playing that well and of course at that point I'm a senior this was January I think uh we had just played Purdue uh and Isaiah had played a lot more than me and it was kind of like trending that direction and I remember hearing getting the text from coach Beeline saying hey will you come in tomorrow I want to talk to you before practice and just kind of seeing the writing on the wall of all right 
this is going to be exactly what I think it is. And him telling me that, yeah, that I, I was getting pulled from the starting lineup. And it was a incredibly challenging thing to hear for a senior. You know, I have all these aspirations of helping lead this team to a national championship, big 10 championship. And then of course, also developing and building a resume to ultimately try to play professionally. And it was just kind of this moment where I just saw everything kind of slipping away and it was it was a tough conversation to have and you know i i just i think the reason that it ultimately ended up being a, a springboard is that it helped shape my really perspective for the remainder of the year and that i had a couple of days after it where you know I, don't, I don't i wasn't sulking like i was still a good teammate and supportive and tried to support isaiah and the rest of the rest of the group but there was definitely some like oh this is so unfair this and that, just natural things that you have in a moment like that. Um, but there was a very distinct conversation where that I had with a, a good friend of mine where I realized I needed to shift my perspective and embrace it for what it was. Nothing was going to change, but instead, the only thing I could change was my perspective moving forward and that that would allow me to you know, star in my new role and whatever that was going to be. And ultimately, by the end of the year, I was you know, playing 30 minutes a game anyway, so it didn't really matter. Uh, but it was definitely, you know, I, I was forced to kind of deal with the fact that I wasn't in that role that I had always envisioned myself, particularly in my senior year. So I think that like we changed as a team when I started coming off the bench. It, it provided us uh, a little bit more depth. It, it gave us, you know, some flexibility with rotations and doing some different things. And I started to play better as well. Truth be told, the first half of my senior year, I didn't play very well. And the second half, I, I really started to make some shots and do some things to to really help us win. So I think that that moment of kind of the, the slap in the face, the shock of uh, getting pulled out of the starting lineup ultimately ended up kind of being that springboard for my success, but then ultimately the team success. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's controlling what you can control, which is always easy to say, like the saying is easy to keep in mind, yeah. but to actually practice that and put that into motion is a different thing. I feel like Jamie on, on Joe Rogan, I just have, you know, the facts in front of me here. You started your senior year, 19 games came off the bench, 22. Uh, and like you said, you played a lot better that second half of the season coming off the bench. You go on to win big 10, sixth man of the year, which should that have an asterisk next to it? Because you started half the season. Yeah, that, that was a pretty anticlimactic award. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not like scoffing at it, but it was like, you know, it was kind of like, well, I, I feel like I should be a starter, anyways. Um, I mean, we'll take it. We'll we'll add the hardware. Yeah, for sure. Um, certainly not complaining by any respects. But yeah, back to your point, control what you can control. Like the other side of that too is like the classic line that every coach always tells their team is like you know, we need to learn how to like sacrifice and like people are going to need to sacrifice in this locker room. And that word that gets thrown around a lot and sacrificing is really easy until it's you who has to do the sacrificing. Sure. And then all of a sudden it starts to shift where it's like, yeah, you know, if you're the best player on the team taking all these shots and playing whatever minutes a game, it's like, it's easy to tell that guy to sacrifice who's, who's not in that role. Um, but for me, that was like a, it was a harsh realization of like, okay, this is my sacrifice. This is what I can bring to this team. And I also think it, it really helped me grow as a leader as well and helped me find my voice as a leader because it built in, it built in some credibility in that I think I handled the situation of, you know, essentially the optics of it being benched for a freshman. 
I handled it well to the point where I could then hold people accountable if other people weren't acting right in terms of complaining about shots or minutes. It's like, hold, hold, hold on here. Like if anybody has a right to complain, it's me. And, and, I, and I, the point being is that I, I was trying my hardest not to. And I thought I was pretty good about it. Um, and that ultimately allowed us to like unlock another level uh, as a team, which ended up working out, of course. Yeah. Big 10 tournament champions run to the national championship, final four run. You played well through that stretch. I know you don't think you played well in the national championship game, but again, it didn't matter. Villanova was going to beat you guys anyway. Yeah, probably. I think they had like five or six NBA players on that team. Anyways, I was going to bring it a little bit more current day, talk a little NBA basketball. We are coming off a a trip to New York. Uh, Only played one game, but we were there for an elongated weekend, which was nice. It was great to see the the city of New York back up and kind of bumping again. Um, Saturday in particular was a beautiful day out. We had the day off, went for a nice stroll around the city, which was fun. What's it like to be an NBA player in New York City who can't go do anything? Is it tempting? I, I assume it's just it's hard. Uh, there's there's some challenges, but uh, I don't I don't like that you said we can't do anything. Like I said, I mean Saturday, as long as you're socially distanced and and you're being safe, yeah, we can't do many of the normal activities uh, that that you would maybe normally enjoy in a, a bumping city like New York, like go out to dinner uh, or, you know, catch up with friends, like that sort of thing. But I was able to go for a nice walk. Uh, one thing that I've, I've come to miss living in Miami is seasons. You know, seasons mm. are incredibly underrated. And Agreed. Saturday in New York City just felt like a spring day. And uh, I was I was loving it. Let me tell you that. We also came out in New York City with a W. Uh, We were fortunate enough to come out on top against the Knicks. And it was great to be back in Madison Square Garden with fans. We had played there earlier this year and there was nobody, but it was nice to get some people back in the seats. Um, Just that that ambiance and and that that feeling in there um, that you get. And it obviously wasn't a packed MSG, but just any fans at all uh, felt, felt normal or close to normal, getting back to normal, I should say. My So two things. One, my brother and my cousin were there. So shout out to both of them. I think they brought good juju to Miami. Um, secondly, there were courtside uh, folks, Jack Harlow, Pete Davidson amongst mm-hmm. them. But that was the first time I remember watching a game this season with people that close to the court. Had you, had you seen that in any other arenas? Um, I think there was one other arena that had it. I'm blanking on it right now. Well, we well actually in Miami we're we're starting to do it. Um, so that's one. But I still think there's another one that I cannot place. But uh, yeah, I mean, of course, MSG you got to have celebrity row, right? Yeah, it's part of the experience. A hundred percent. And yeah, as you said, they were down there. Jack and uh, Tyler had their little moment after the right. game. That, yeah, the jersey the, uh, swap. The jersey swap uh, of course, which was special, but, um, but yeah, it, it was just, it, of course it, it just contributes to the, the ambiance of, of MSG. Um, but like I said, it, it was great to get out of there with a win. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you also had one of my favorite shots of yours this season so far, the end of shot clock, uh, spinning fade away three at the end of the shot clock. I, I usually as a, just as a, you know, supporter don't love when you get the end of the shot clock bomb. Cause it's typically a difficult shot. Uh, but you somehow found a way for that one to drop, which was fun. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Right near the Knicks bench, uh, they were all sounding off. 
you know, as the 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 shot clock was winding down, because it looked like I was kind of dead in the water there, which I really was, to be honest with you. Uh, R.J. Barrett had actually played some pretty good defense, and I just kind of turned around and heaved it up there. And like I said, they were they were sounding off, and when it went in, I I turned and I just said, "Yeah, I work on that." And I walked and I walked and I walked back, um, which clearly I, I don't actually work on that. But uh, in the moment, it was, you know, I just had to let him know. This is incredible. I didn't know that. I was going to ask because it looked like you said something. I work on that is beautiful. And this is another example. We talked about this last week. Another example of you talking a little shit. Like, here's the thing. If all these stories I hear, the catch I keep high, the I work on that, the I'm cooking now, like none of it is aggressive. Like I'm not putting you in like the KG tier of trash talk, but it's still there. It's still there. It's somewhere on, you know, it's somewhere in between, you know, no trash talk at all. And like the top tier guys, you're, you're falling in the middle somewhere. I don't know if it's trash talk as much as it is just making live time observations, you know, fine. I'm just kind of acknowledging what's going on in, in the moment. And, and I am, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm vocalizing it, uh, which I guess would maybe fall under the category of trash talk, but it's not like personal by any means. I'm not taking shots at anybody, uh, but more so just, you know, some good old fashioned back and forth. I would let that slide if it was truly just an observation. Like that's catch high, keep high. I guess that's an observation. I'm cooking now. Is somewhat is of a, also potentially an observation, but I work on that is just not true. That's I know for a fact you don't work on that shot, so that one dips into shit talking. I think. Yeah, there, there's a fine line there. I guess it, I guess it's hard to say what what side of it uh, we fall on. Hey, I have a Miami Heat question for you. So you've now played a game with Bielitsa, have not played with Vic yet, but it made me think when you add guys to a roster, is enough of what's going on around the NBA similar that these guys can just sort of be thrown in to offensive and defensive schemes and just kind of pick it up? Or is there like a whole new playbook that these guys need to learn? And so there's going to be a learning curve uh, with, with guys all around the league, but then particularly in Miami. Some of the terminology and some of the calls are specific place to place. Um, in general, though, a lot of the actions, uh, a lot of the kind of schemes and systems are pretty much recycled. I mean, it, there's kind of like a, I don't know if you call it a joke, but maybe like an inside little anecdote, I guess, that everyone just runs the same stuff. You know, it, it's all kind of recreated and uh, rebranded. And, and there might be little tweaks here and there based off of team personnel or, you know, a, a coach's preference on how they want to do a certain thing. But in general, like I, I was talking to, to Belly during one of our shoot arounds, I, I was just kind of talking him through something. And I was asking him, you know, how similar this was to, you know, where, where he had been before in Sacramento and Minnesota. And, you know, he, he just kind of made that same sort of comment and that like, it's a little different here. Cause I think Miami prides themselves on doing st- stuff a little bit different, but he's like, at the end of the day, basketball is just basketball. And it's a lot of the same actions. It's a lot of playing off of each other, player movement, ball movement, all that sort of stuff. So I think that, you know, particularly early on, like I, I was talking to, to belly because, uh, Vic, Vic, uh, I haven't 
played with Vic yet. Obviously, he didn't play in that New York game. But uh, just talking to Belly, and he was just like, you know, it's been a whirlwind just since the trade. You know, he flew to Miami, flew up to New York. He's been bouncing around. And, uh, you know, I think probably the place that he's the most comfortable is is on the basketball court, you know, like just because it's something that we're all familiar with. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I wonder or I assume there's also some changes that then need to be made from you guys too. Like it's not that just Belly needs to come in and figure out the heat offense, but it's also that you guys need to start tailoring some of those actions that you run for him and for Vic and start to incorporate some things that work for these new guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think a a good amount of that burden falls on the staff, right. And that they need to figure out how to uh, put those guys in situations to be successful. I think the area where it really comes down to the players is just learning to really play with one another. I mean, that's something that I really can't like, overstate enough of its importance is like building a rapport between teammates and an understanding of where you're going to be on the floor. I I think probably the best example I've ever experienced of that is last year's bubble run in in the playoffs to the point where we just had such great continuity and understanding of where everyone was going to be, you know, tendencies, where people, you know, liked to be on the floor, how people were going to move without the ball, you know, what people are going to do with the ball, how they're going to re- react to certain defensive schemes to the point where it's like, you know, when, when you really get it humming, particularly offensively and obviously defensively, of course, too, because, you know, trust and being able to rely on people in the right spots. But if you really want to have a, an effective and, and dynamic offense, so much of it is reliant not on, you know, where coaches put you X's and O's, but more so how you're able to actually play off of one another um, and if the pieces really fit. So in that regard, you know, it's it's going to take some time to really develop that rapport. But, you know, I think that's part of why they have uh, the trade deadline when they do is that they give teams time to really round into form uh, before the games really, really start to matter uh, come the playoffs. Got it. Yep. Makes sense. Um, another question then, because that's interesting to hear you say that a lot of guys or a lot of teams sort of run the same thing same actions. Like you said, at the end of the day, it's just kind of playing basketball, understanding your teammates, you know, understanding their tendencies, all that stuff. My cousin, uh, plays at, you know, my cousin, he plays, uh, in Miami for the dolphins backup quarterback, uh, shout out to Reed. And he, he, I remember we went out to lunch and he was talking to us about how in the NFL, you can, it's very clear the coaching tree lineage because yeah. certain teams have certain schemes that are so similar, uh, you know, like the Andy Reid offense or the Belichick defense. Yeah. Is it the same way in the NBA then where like you can look at coaching staffs and then when those guys break off and get jobs elsewhere, you can assume that they're sort of running the same things? I, I think where you really can tend to see that is actually defensively. Um, I think that offensively is is – is different because the game has just changed so much and if you're not going to change with the game it's like kind of like that adapt or die type of thing you know if you're if you're running offense that the same offense you were running in 2011 2010 like maybe an occasional set here or there but if you're running like to to get mid-range twos and and work you know bigs in the post like you're just not going to be able to score enough points to win so as a result you've seen 
pretty much every team. That's why like the offensive stuff is so repetitive because everyone's working to get threes, layups, and free throws. That's just how how the game boils down now. Um, but where I think you really see that lineage and those trees are, are defensively in that there are teams that are just like honestly the the Knicks are a great example like a Tom Thibodeau coach team the game is going to be in the mud and and that's just how it goes like last night it was 98 88 that was the final score you know pretty infrequent to see in 2021 two NBA teams score under 100 um that's it's just not that common and that's a, in large part resulted to Tom Thibodeau coach teams are going to protect the paint Tom Thibodeau coach teams are going to be kind of you know rough and and bruising and uh it's not going to be like the prettiest style of basketball um and honestly like we have some ten we have some similarities to that uh as well i mean i know we're one of the best teams in the nba at protecting the paint and that's a huge emphasis for us every game you know how well can we protect the paint um so and, and you see you see similarities down the line um and that they're some of those old school coaches you know van gundy is similar um a lot of his philosophy is always bringing in that third defender and always having somebody in the paint so it's uh i think that where you see kind of like the the lineage and the, the coaching trees are more so defensively and then offensively everybody's kind of adapted and adjusted to this new fast-paced uh, you know, three-point shooting style of of NBA basketball, which you pretty much see everywhere now. Got it. Yeah, super interesting and makes sense. Um, I wanted to also ask you about uh, just going on around the league. Did you see Russ the other night, 35, 21, and 14? The Russ slander will not be tolerated. I mean, <laughs> at, at some point, you just have to sit back and just be – in awe. I mean, I know people are always going to say stat padding or he's stat hunting, whatever. I mean, first of all, he did it in a win. Right. Uh, and they, they beat a good, you know, indie team. But what he's able to do to step up in, in Brad Beal's absence, Brad, you know, Brad missed that game. And for him to come in and I don't want to say single handedly because he did have 21 assists. So somebody has to finish those, those assists. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, that is just an incredible. I, I just don't think he gets nearly the appreciation that that he really deserves that is incredible 35 and 21 assists if if all 21 of those assists assists are for twos which they certainly weren't that's accounting for 77 points and it surely was more than that and then you add 14 rebounds in there it's just is remarkable no he uh i mean he's been doing it for so long too which makes it so impressive is just the longevity and he does it everywhere he goes i mean even last year it was one of his better more impressive seasons from a statistical standpoint just based off of efficiency and everyone seems to think that he's done and and he's washed up i know there's always going to be people that are going to say well until he does it where they win but the reality is i mean he's he's been on really good teams as well um it's i think the the misconception of pinning it on one player uh, just because they haven't been able to get it done from a championship perspective, it takes so much more than that. Obviously, LeBron is maybe a little bit of an exception. Uh, but even even LeBron's teams, you see like what it, his first year in L.A. versus he, he needed, uh, you know, an A.D. around him. Um, but it's 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 just incredible what he's been able to do at such a high level for such a long time. Yep. My, uh, my quick rust story is we've talked about this on the pod, but that summer I was out in Santa Monica helping workout guys. 
uh, for Noah LaRoche and integrity. Russ was one of the guys who we were working out and there was a day where he was working on his like short post moves. And so he was uh, like a step off the block. If you can envision kind of like that short wing area and he would catch it on like a post and square up. And then he got one dribble to do something, you know, one dribble. And we were sort of taking turns, us guys that were, that were helping out, taking turns guarding him. And somehow it got to the point where like there were other guys in the gym. So the other helpers went somewhere else. So it ended up just being me guarding him at this drill. And, uh, he got 20 attempts with one dribble off the block, 20, 20 possessions. And I am, my goal is to guard him as hard as I can be as physical as possible with him. Fouls were allowed. Oh dear. And he scored 19 of the 20 times. And the 20, the, the, the one he missed was just a step back where I was like under the rim and he was, you know, out near the three, uh, because he just bodied me and he just missed it. It was just a wide open shot that he just missed. But, uh, so I, you know, you know, I am never going to be somebody who thinks that I can guard an NBA player anyway, but that was one of those moments where it's just very humbling of like, I legitimately have no chance. I want to I want to run off that story for a second because I think it, you bring up an interesting point that I think needs to be addressed to the public. <laughs> in that we we've released your your high school footage. You you were a good high school player. You played college basketball. A very very small percentage of the basketball population goes on to play collegially. You are in all accounts a an above average. Very far above average basketball player. Thank you so much. There is this misconception among the masses that because you're not an NBA starter or an NBA star or even an NBA rotation player, that if you find yourself on the back of an NBA bench, that you are now somehow a scrub. I just I just want to address that publicly and that you've spent a lot of time in gyms with fringe NBA guys, oh, yeah. not just Russell Westbrooks, but like guys that are, are doing everything they can to make it in the NBA. Yes. I want you to speak to that. I, I want you to speak to the skill discrepancy between yourself, who once again, <laughs> you play a high level of basketball, <laughs> and those players. It is massive. Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. The skill discrepancy isn't always massive. Like you and I talk about this a lot, Dunk, but the difference between division one and division three basketball, the skill isn't always the difference. The skill is oftentimes there. Like you could go to your local rec and find somebody who can shoot the shit out of it. Skill, skill's not always the difference, but for those guys who maybe aren't top tier skill, like, you know, the guys who aren't shooting like Duncan Robinson or handling like Kyrie in the NBA have something else that's making them incredibly elite. And then you have the guys who have a little bit of, of both. And Russ certainly falls into that category where he's incredibly skilled and he is an incredible athlete. So I say all that to say, yes, that these, I mean, it's just remarkable. And again, me who I was never a great defender, but I was an above average basketball player have absolutely no prayer of guarding Russell Westbrook. I have absolutely no prayer of guarding anyone who's playing professional basketball. It's It takes me to Brian uh, Scalabrini, to Scal, mm. who 
is notorious for like taking on the local gym guy who thinks he can beat him one-on-one and then scow you know wins 11 to zero against like guys who play in college basketball even yeah so yes it's just there is there is a gap there's levels there's levels to this there are levels to this yes 100 percent. scal has a great quote in which he says i am way closer i being scal i am way closer to lebron than you are to me right <laughs> Like way closer. So if you guys think of how much better, and I love Scal. That's that's actually my guy. Uh, when you think of how how incredible LeBron is compared to Scal, he is way closer to LeBron than your average fan or average basketball player is to Scal. Um, yes. I I just I I wanted to address that for a handful of reasons, but the main one being in that I think. It's there's just a huge misconception that there are people that are on NBA rosters that are more than capable of being really good NBA players, but they just haven't had the situation or the opportunity in order to prove so. And I think that as you move up, it's really all levels of of all sports, but I think particularly as you move up levels and and the skill discrepancy gets tighter and tighter because everybody's so good it becomes more and more about situation, fit, opportunity, and whether or not you can make the most of those opportunities. You know, sometimes, especially, you know, depending on on who you are uh, or kind of your what precedes you, right? Like your where you went to college or how you did in college or your where you were drafted, all these types of things contribute to actually getting real opportunity versus maybe getting limited opportunity. Um, but that's just the nature of the business and, and how it goes. Yeah. And, and you've talked about this before, but it's so hard to stay on an NBA roster because th- you know, there's the youth movement where you know the guys are one and done. Like there's so much rotation on the end of a bench that for you to be there, you have to be elite. So it just yeah. goes back to your point of like these guys who aren't playing. It's not that they're not good enough. It's th- they're good enough. There's a reason they're there. It's just like you said, it comes down to situation and being in the right the right fit. Well, I think this this ties in nicely to our Reddit question. It does. It does actually. Perfect segue. Which I'm gonna I'm gonna let you handle. Yeah, I'll take this. So this one comes from uh, cultural role, and they ask how big is the gap between college and MBA. So we sort of have already hit on that a little bit, but I'd love Dunk for your perspective on that, and not so much because we talked just now a little bit about the talent gap, but you can speak to that a little bit. But then also just the difference in the game itself. I think, you know, stylistically in in the actual gameplay, that's one thing that just continues to be super fascinating to me, especially now in March when I'm I'm watching way more college basketball. Admittedly, like I said before, I I haven't watched a lot of college basketball, um, particularly since I've been in the NBA, but it's, it's so interesting to go back and watch and see how different the game is, the pace, um, the style of play. I think the biggest one that jumps out is the spacing. I think in college, or I, I don't think, I know, <laughs> when I watch it, everyone's on top of each other. The paint is so crowded. And the NBA, there's just such an emphasis around spacing. And, and obviously, there, there's an emphasis around spacing in college as well, but you're just not able to uh, be as effective in your scheming in that 
you know, there's no defensive three seconds, which I think makes a big difference. Uh, the three-point line being pushed a little bit further, I think, makes a big difference. And then, of course, just the talent. Uh, you know, you, you'll watch a college game, and there might be, you know, one or two guys that can actually create or, or shoot it. And that's not me coming at, at, at college players. Obviously, college basketball is a really high level of, of basketball. But, you know, in, in the NBA, there are people out there whose sole job it is to space the floor. And you know, they can't, they can't be let, they can't be given any space. So you're hugged up and, and that allows, you know, guys like a, a Jimmy Butler, for example, on our team to play and operate in space. Um, so I, I think the spacing is, is the biggest difference from like a, a style of play standpoint, that and the pace, those are the two big ones. Um, you know, that, and that's no surprise why you see the score so low in college, uh, just because it's so much harder to score because it's so much harder to get into the paint and to be effective. Um, so I think that's a huge one in terms of the actual, you know, players, obviously the speed, um, the athleticism and the size, you know, one thing that you see very frequently and commonly in the NBA are rim protectors. And truthfully, like there's just not a lot of those in college. But pretty much every team in the NBA has a guy whose job it is they pay to protect the paint just because if you're able to protect the paint as a defense, you're, you're doing pretty well. Um, and and it's, it's a really hard thing to do, but that's why you know, shot-blocking bigs are, are so coveted uh, because they really allow you to, to anchor a defense. So it's, it's definitely a totally different game. And, and one thing, obviously, I've been truthfully a, a beneficiary of is you know, people's games fit different levels um, for, you know, are, are, are more likely to fit different levels. Like for me, you know, my, a lot of people say like, oh, well, your game is perfect for the NBA. And in large part, it's because of the emphasis on spacing and the emphasis on three-point shooting. Obviously that same stuff is emphasized in college, but it, it's just taken to a whole different level um, when you start talking about the NBA. Question for you, because when I watch uh, and we've talked, we talked about this last week, but I watch a lot of NBA and now I'm watching more college than ever because of the tournament. And what is glaring to me is how hard these college guys play every possession. Do you see that too? Or is it a trick being played on the viewer's brain that it's just an uglier game? So it looks like these guys are playing harder. Whereas like in the NBA, it just looks so easy for guys, but it just, I think that might be just because it the game is just easier once you're at that level. It's a combination. Um, I, I think that college teams in general play really, really hard. You know, I think it's Kenny Smith uh, would always say it like the TNT halftime. If in the NBA, if you play really hard and that's your identity as a team, you're looking at you can you can win you know you can go 500 just by playing hard and i think that you know with that being said there are a lot of teams in the nba that play really hard like there are i know a lot of people don't want to hear that but there are um and i also hate the misconception that nba teams don't care about defense that is ridiculous uh and just a bunch of malarkey yeah it's just harder to guard james harden like i'm sorry right. <laughs> that that was the next point i was going to make in that in college, you're able to crawl into the ball. You're able to press. You're able to pick up full court. You're able to do these things that you just can't do to James Harden. You can't do to Jimmy Butler. You can't do, of course, like to LeBron, like Steph Curry. Uh, 
it, it's just the, the skill and the talent is just so elite that it's just so challenging to guard. Like if you play really good defense in college, you're going to get a stop. You know, maybe there, there's a, a chance, you know, if you protect the paint and do all these things, like you're going to get a stop. You can play really, really good defense in the NBA and it just might not matter. <laughs> like the <laughs> offense might just be better on that possession. And that happens pretty frequently. And and that's why you can't get so caught up in stops, but instead just like doing your job and, and, and handling, uh, you know, the task at hand and trying to just limit, you know, make it difficult, right? Like you're never, we, we talk about this all the time when we play a really good player, you're not going to stop a guy from getting his numbers. You know, some of these guys, they're going to get their 25. They're going to get their 28 points a game. It's just how do we make this really difficult for them? How do we make yeah. them do it on 22, 23 shots and not, you know, 16, 17, where they're getting to the free throw line and they're also creating for others. So that's that really becomes a challenge is like you're not going to stop anybody. You're not going to shut anybody out. But we just got to make this really challenging and make them operate in space and make it difficult. Speaking of good offense typically beats good defense, I've seen in media this week with LaMarcus Aldridge going to Brooklyn, there's you know a lot of media talking heads like, oh, the rich get richer. You know They're already by far the best offensive team in the NBA. Now they just add another weapon. They obviously, Brooklyn, are loaded uh, when you look at their roster on paper. When you see a move like that, like, oh, they now have LaMarcus Aldridge, like, do you keep a pulse on that stuff going on around the league or are you guys just completely focused on what you're doing in Miami? Or is it like, oh shit, oh God, oh Brooklyn, oh man, they're they're loaded. No, I mean you definitely you definitely acknowledge that it happens, right? Um, you know, the the media the NBA media train is a ridiculous one. I feel like we've commented on this before, but uh it's like the game within the game and, and there's so much coverage and exposure around it. And particularly because there was a lot of speculation that Lamarcus was maybe gonna be coming to Miami. Obviously that that didn't happen. Um but but yeah, I mean it's it's uh you certainly have an eye on it. And particularly, you know, in the East where you know we came out of the East last year and uh we have aspirations and, and hopes to do the same this year. So that's a potential team that you know, we're, we're looking at, we would have to beat in order to do so. So, um, I mean, their, their, their roster as, as, you know, you kind of mentioned is of course loaded. I think I saw like the 41 all-star appearances between everyone or, or right. something like ridiculous like that. And, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't know what else to say other than they're obviously, you know, poised to be a, a tough out in the playoffs. I think that's probably putting it lightly, but, uh, it's, I, I don't necessarily, I don't think anyone, you know, if you're able to tap into the competitive side of you views it as insurmountable. Um, I think, you know, everyone's mortal and everyone's beatable. Good answer. I was just curious. I don't know. Um, all right. We, I'm kind of proud of how long we've been we've been going here. You want to uh, wrap it up though. You want to get to our long shot feature. Yeah, let's let's uh, bring this to a close. We got the long shot feature. This one is a particularly relevant one. Um, yes. We got D.D. Richards, the point guard for Baylor, who I actually I watched play against the Michigan Wolverines uh, and the Connecticut Huskies uh, this past weekend. Plays with a lot of heart. But she actually, so she suffered a spinal cord injury back in October during a practice, and it left her temporarily paralyzed. 
And there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty around her future and her ability to actually ever be able to play basketball again, let alone, you know, maybe not eat, like be potentially physically impaired um, for her life. And basically over the last couple of weeks, um, or I should say more than a couple of weeks, couple of months, through extensive rehab and of course, personal will and dedication, she was back on the court in just 38 days. Wow. And this past weekend, the Baylor women's basketball team made it to the Elite Eight, lost in heartbreaking fashion uh, to the Connecticut Huskies. Very controversial call. I don't know if you saw it. I did. I think that, uh, well, I don't think. She definitely got fouled. Um, and yeah, it was uh, you know just an unfortunate way for their season to end, but an incredible story for Dee Dee uh, to go from being very uncertain about her playing future to being a key piece on a really good Baylor women's basketball team. Yep. Um, I will say I'm a proponent of swallowing the whistle late in games, which I know isn't always uh, well-received, but I actually do typically stray on uh, not calling the foul. That one's tough, though. It's just That was egregious. I know. It looked like she got mauled a little bit. But do you see Gino after the game? He was, you know, his whole like, look, there are calls missed all game. All right. I've never seen anyone give a give a win back because of a missed call. He's like, we're going to take this one, which, you know. Well, of course. Yeah, you got to take it. But I, I think a missed call with, you know, seven minutes to go in the first quarter and, you know, that one late in the game like that are a little bit different. I think it's a little bit of a false equivalence. One's weighted a little a little differently. Yeah. Nonetheless, shout out to Didi. Uh, she has certainly a, a bright future ahead of her. Yeah. Um, she is our this week's long shot feature. All right. Beautiful. Yeah, that's what we got for you. Anything else you you want to hit on here? Uh, not much else. Feel like we had a nice little convo, covered a, a wealth of uh, you know different topics. Yeah, but, it felt uh, good. Yeah, another uh, another week at the long shot, and we look forward to to having you back here next week. By the way, uh, merch is coming. More merch is coming. I see a lot of people hitting us up on social asking for the catch. I keep high tea specifically. Wow. They're coming. They're coming. I wish I could give you a date or time, but just know that it's in the works. More are coming. Love it. Be on the lookout. Catch high, keep high.